Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. If you read a lot of nonfiction, you may be familiar with what some call the memoir quandary, the complaint that memoir and autobiography are too narrowly focused on the writer's life to be of real interest to anyone but themselves. To avoid this criticism, many nonfiction writers attempt to achieve greater relatability and universality in their writing. But is this appeal really more desirable than the art of telling a good story? While there's nothing wrong with seeking common ground, one of the magical qualities of writing is how it can not only transport the reader to new places and experiences, but also introduce them to perspectives they might not have considered before. As a recent entry in the University of Nebraska Press's award-winning American Lives series, Micah McCrary's Island in the City challenges us to consider both personal and political implications of one man's life experiences through intimately intersectional prose. As a black and queer-identifying man, McCrary examines these identities through keen exploration of gender, sexuality, race, class, geography, and more in order to comment on the simultaneous singularity and ubiquity of human experience. Though McCrary is careful to note that his is an autobiography of one man, and that he can speak for no one but himself, Island in the City is nevertheless a radical exercise in empathetic connection. Today on New Books and Literature, join us as we sit down with author Micah McCrary to hear more about Island in the City, available now from the University of Nebraska Press. Micah, thank you so much for being here with us today. Hi, Zoe. Thank you for inviting me on. Absolutely. Um, so my first question about your book, Island in the City, um, it's it's part of the uh, uh, University of Nebraska Press's American Live series. Um, could you tell us a little bit about that series? Uh, while the American Lives series is, um, is featured on, sorry, it features mostly autobiograph- autobiography and memoir that is focused on different parts of living in the United States, not just geographically, but also tied to varying U.S. cultures and um, mostly just getting, getting exposure for what it means to live in the United States um, as a place that has so much going on within it. Um, it is intended to showcase more or less the diversity of different regions, different um, cultures, different um, ways of living in the same country. So you yourself grew up in a small town called Normal, Illinois. That's correct. Um, So my question for you is what kind of a place is Normal? And what was your experience growing up there um, as you describe as often the only black child in your class. Well, I currently live in Athens, Ohio, and Athens reminds me of normal in a lot of ways, except for the fact that it's, I think, literally five times smaller. So normal is a, it's a rural college town. And so it's very, it's very centered on its college and university atmosphere. It's also um, very centered on education and um, people being there to to go to school, and I think that I think that growing up there provided me a lot of ways to sort of 
consider this what people call town and gown um, atmosphere in that you've got this you've got this divide between people who are involved in uh, college and university settings and people who are separate from it. And I think that in some ways that gave me access to seeing the diversity of people who come to town to attend school and who are not from normal at all. And so I got to, I got to see many different walks of life in that way, but um, leaving the university atmosphere, it was much less diverse, much less um, uh, varied in the ways that people acted and spoke and thought. And uh, it wasn't just about racial diversity, but things felt much more um, homogenous the, the further away you got from the, from the college campuses. And so what that ended up looking like, for me at least, was growing up in a place where I would be in elementary school, and as you mentioned before, I would be the only black child in school um, or the only the only student of color, period, um, in my class. And although I went to not really a large elementary school or junior high or high school, um, I did grow up sort of with this sense that with this sense that the the locals, the people who weren't just passing through because of a job or because of school, uh, were mostly white. And so I think that I got I think that I got very used to that way of living, if that's the way to put it at all. Um, just sort of just sort of me growing up thinking about race pretty constantly. Um, not in any way that I felt was demeaning or heavy. Um, maybe they would be heavy for a child, but I think it was just sort of the way that things were. Um, and there wasn't really any change that I could make. So I, I learned to live in normal based on the way that I could perceive it and the way, the way that, or sorry, and also based on the relationships I was forming um, with the people I grew up with. So speaking to some of the earlier chapters in your book, when you were growing up, um, a term that continues to come up is Oreo. So I was wondering if you could tell us what is an Oreo and what are your feelings about this term, especially as it was applied by others to you? Hmm. Uh, I think I'll start with the second part of that question and saying that I, um, I'm fine with it for myself. I think that maybe for, I'm, I'm totally not comfortable uh, speaking for other black Americans in how they might feel about the term, but I'm fine with it for, for myself in terms of how, in terms of being someone who grew up um, with that term sort of thrown at him, especially in the environment that I was living. And for me, that that also translates to, I think I quoted um, W.E.B. Du Bois, who said um, something like white sentimentality in a, inside a black body. And what that means is, um, is obviously being, being black or African-American on the outside, um, but having, having socially assimilated in ways that kind of replicate what it means or kind of replicate um, 
ways of white living, I guess, that could be um, someone's dialect, that could be the way they dress, that could um, be the, the things that they were into. And so what I, what I learned about myself growing up and, you know, being called an Oreo as I was growing up was that, you know, the music I listened to, um, because it wasn't rap or hip hop, um, sort of aligned me with the white kids in school instead of the black kids in school. Um, so did the way that I spoke and so did the way that I dressed. And so I, I figured out pretty concretely that it was just, that it was their way of sort of saying that I, I fit in with them more than I fit in with any other black kids who were at school. So I'm glad that you mentioned um, your hesitance to speak for other Black Americans, because this is another theme that I noticed in the book. Early on, you write, um, please remove me from the discourse of race because I don't represent anyone but myself. Um, So I was wondering, as a Black man who also identifies as queer, um, could you speak to that decision in Island in the City? Yeah, certainly. I think that... As I was writing Island in the City, I knew very firmly that I was writing autobiographically. And um, there might be, there are hints of cultural criticism in there as well. And I wanted it to feel as if I was talking about the way that I read the world. Um, But it's not the same way that I think um, people like James Baldwin or Hilton Alls write about the world, or someone like Susan Sontag or Maggie Nelson. It's not. it's not looking at the world and making critiques about it, but rather looking at the world specifically through a very subjective lens. And even if I did uh, critique at times, I think what I really wanted to do was just say, here is what I see, um, and more or less ask the reader to take that as fa- at, that at face value. And so I think that... I think that one of the things that that results in is this autobiographical writing that is sort of working inwardly and outwardly at the same time. Um, also something that I attempted to do, but I, I felt most comfortable in the position as the author to write about what I had experienced um, and focus on those experiences rather than saying, I know this for a fact about subject X or Y or Z. And I don't, I don't know that at the time that I was actually writing the manuscript that I could have executed it in any other way. I was in this place where, where autobiography felt like that's where I should be. And so I went with that and that, um, that resulted in something that feels very much like I am speaking to my experience, but am not speaking, even if there is something in common with other people's experiences. Um, I'm not speaking for those. I'm not saying this is what we all go through um, in any way, shape, or form. There's there's no royal we here in terms of uh, in terms of my experiences as a Black American or as a queer American. So speaking to the 
the latter identity that you mentioned, um, being a queer American, one of the most profound moments in the book for me was uh, when you wrote that Matthew Shepard um, was actually murdered the same year, shortly after you discovered your own bisexuality. Um, that really struck me. And so I was wondering if you could speak to sort of the stakes that that raised for you as a young man coming to terms with that identity. Um, what I remember is just a lot of fear. I was, I think, in the first semester of seventh grade. And I felt like I had gotten to this point where I knew who I was and I was ready to talk about it with friends. Um, and they would even ask about it. Uh, you know, just being curious and being in this place where everyone is curious about everyone else's sexuality. Um, but then but then Matthew Shepard's murder happened and I felt not at all able to talk about it anymore because I, um, I think Laramie is in Wyoming and I, I'm not sure that normal was anything like Laramie's rural setting, but it was it was close enough to me for me to be afraid of how people would react. Uh, if I had come out. So even though I felt ready, even though I felt I, I had the answers that I had been looking for, I wasn't really, I wasn't really in a place to share those uh, with anyone. And I think that, I think that that was all about normal. Now that I look at it retrospectively, I don't know that, uh, I don't know that Shepard's murder would have hit me the same if I had actually been growing up in a city. Um, but growing up in a place where there was a lot of farmland and I could, you know, relate or connect um, that farmland, however rationally or irrationally, to the way that Shepard died, uh, it just it gave me a lot of hesitation, um, and even more than hesitation, it gave me fear, and so that influenced a lot of decisions about how I ended up expressing myself as a teenager. So maybe speaking to that a little bit more, uh, throughout you talk about what you call um, either desirous or beautiful anonymity, uh, to not be seen and especially not to be seen as a Black or a queer identifying man. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what that term means, desirous or beautiful anonymity, and why these are important to you? I think in order to, in order to grasp onto the desirous part, I should definitely provide a disclaimer that it's my desire, uh, but also, but also expand on that by, by saying that I, I wanted to be someone who could, who could blend in rather than stand out. Um, I know that that was sometimes literally impossible, especially in the cases where, um, I was the only black child in a group of friends or, uh, at a party or something like that. And I think that, I think that being in a place socially where even if that was visibly obvious, um, it wasn't something that anyone had to comment on. Um, and I think that that probably came from knowing how obvious things were, uh, maybe to use the phrase elephant in the room. Um, I didn't want anyone to point out that that was, uh, that was a factor or um, a part of what was going on socially um i'm not sure actually i think i think my desired anonymity mostly came from just being in a place where 
not just a geographical place, but uh, a temporal place, a place in my life where it was only uncomfortable to think about sticking out like a sore thumb. And so what I did was assimilate as best as I could with with my friends, um, with the social decorum of the places where I went around and using using sort of chameleonic tools to do the best I could not to have someone notice this or that about me, whether that was uh, blackness or queerness. In the chapter to rebel against men, you talk about the concept, um, and I hope I'm pronouncing this correctly, of menschkeit. I think so. I am not a German speaker, so I, that's how I would pronounce it as well, yeah. Okay. So what does that mean, and why do you personally reject it? Hmm. Um, well, Menschkeit, from one perspective, uh, the perspective of masculinity, is this idea that there's a bond that men share, and that has always made me uncomfortable. I don't... Um, I don't like the idea that, you know, two men can have this sort of relationship that is special just because of their gender or just because of their gender performance. Um, but another, another perspective on Menschkeit, actually, that I learned as I was writing the book is that um, a, a Jewish friend was talking to me about this and how um, it can also just mean being a good person. Uh, Menschkeit can also mean being um, being a man that someone can look up to because of their qualities that could be considered, you know, kindness or nobility or just um, things about them that just make them a good man that's separate from masculinity. And I think that um, I think that what I clung to instead was this idea from I believe it was City Hall where uh, Al Pacino's character combines the two. Um, he, he sort of says, you know, in order to be this good man, you also have to give other men this reason to want to form a bond with you. And I was really sort of taken aback by that when I saw the movie. And I think that that also helped me sort of reflect on the ways that I had always, um, throughout my entire life growing up, avoided reasons to be a part of a, I don't know, a boys club or, um, I don't know, uh, any situation in which, uh, boys were encouraged to do boyish things and want to, I guess, be what was considered normal. Um, I think the only way that I felt really comfortable with those uh, with those expectations were in sports. I I did grow up playing a number of co-ed sports, but uh, many of the sports in which I played um, were not co-ed. I was, you know, on boys' teams, and I think that I felt a really big divide in who I was as this athlete among athletes and how, you know, that had put certain expectations on my, on my male body, um, and on their male, on their male bodies. And that felt acceptable. Um, 
those expectations felt acceptable because we were using four sports, but it didn't feel acceptable socially. And so I tried to distance myself from that the best that I could. Um, I think that I, I still do. I'm still uncomfortable with the idea of, um, male bonding and, you know, trying to form relationships just because of, um, just because of gender or physical sex. And I, I don't know. I think that, um, it's just been, it's just been a fact of my life that, um, that sense of discomfort. Well, that segues really nicely into my next question, which is sort of a two-parter. Okay. Um, the first is, uh, how do you conceptualize male beauty and the second is in the same vein, what is the difference between appearing athletic and being an athlete? Hmm. Um, in terms of male beauty, I, I like the idea of this male presentation that is not uh, hypermasculine. I like the idea of um, being, able, being able to see the way that I could, especially be sort of graceful, right? As, as someone who grew up an athlete, I, I thought a lot about my body very constantly. I had this very tight relationship with my body. I knew when something was right, when something was wrong. I knew um, what my capabilities were, what my limits were. And I wanted to use that knowledge to sort of be someone that, um, be someone who could impress other people with that ability. I liked being able to run the way I could and, you know, maybe hit a ball the way I could or kick a ball the way I could. Um, it looked, or maybe it, it felt, it felt as though that was a way in which I was using my male body right. Um, and I think in terms of, I think in terms of appearances, I kind of, I kind of probably imagined the way that, you know, people in audiences at sports games, for example, um, would see that body performing and imagined that they liked it the way that I did. They, um, that they appreciated that this body could do this or that. And I don't know, I guess, I guess in my mind, um, in my mind, that's, that turned into this presentation of just knowing my body and knowing how to use it. In terms of being athletic versus uh, appearing athletic, I, I was always surrounded by crowds of boys and girls who could identify with what they did uh, athletically. Uh, that could be you know, being the football player, being the soccer player, being the cheerleader, being the basketball player. And I think that the key for me was in this identification. I had to separate noun from verb. I played soccer, but I wasn't the soccer player. I played baseball or basketball, but I wasn't a player of those things. And I think that I had to, at least for my own sake, just let people see me as someone who could do these things, but who didn't, um, who didn't depend on them in order to define his identity and 
more or less used that as the dividing line between um, what I was and how I appeared. So one of the pivotal moments in the book is your transition from uh, having lived in normal uh, for your entire life to moving to Chicago, a big Uh city. Um, So in what ways was the transition frightening and in what other ways was it liberating? Hmm. Uh, I think it was frightening before it was ever liberating. I, um, I'd been used to visiting Chicago, but the idea of, you know, going to sleep when I could hear taxis and ambulances and fire engines, uh, just outside the window was a really big adjustment. The idea of walking outside and not seeing any trees was a big adjustment. The idea of seeing um, skyscrapers every single day was a big adjustment. Um, so when I moved to Chicago, I, I moved into a dorm that was downtown. And I think that I think that being in downtown Chicago and having to acclimate to downtown Chicago was really tough in that it was just so different from the way that I had been used to living my day-to-day existence in normal. Um, and it felt like there was a lot of pressure in there, there was a lot of pressure focused on how I felt I had to act. I felt that maybe I learned this from, uh, stereotypes, but I felt that city people were just, you know, harder or, um, that they weren't as polite or, um, that there were just ways that you act when you're in the middle of a city than you do when you're in rural areas and there were ways in which those stereotypes came to be true and ways in which they came to be very untrue um but i think that that was at least for the first um couple years of me living in chicago that was what i held on to and so i think i think that i had to i had to just get to know the city, not just its streets and landmarks and um, neighborhoods, but also get to know the people. I, the longer I lived there, the more I met native Chicagoans and the more they showed me things about the city that I could learn to appreciate or even fall in love with. And I think that that helped me the most in terms of in terms of not being so shy about how, how overwhelming the city felt or feeling like I was okay there, I could be myself there, there were people who wanted me to be myself there. And meeting people and getting around um, and not just sticking around my dorm downtown was probably the best thing for me. And that... I guess was to use your word liberating in not just a not just a social sense but also in a physical sense. Um Chicago's big, it has a lot to offer and I just needed to sometimes literally see that in order to um enhance my comfort with the city. You write that your parents were concrete examples of upward mobility, but that you have spent most of your adult life trying to stay in the class in which you were born. 
Um, so how did living in Chicago change your understanding of money and class? Hmm. I think that, I think that living in Chicago showed me, showed me how difficult upward mobility could be. I had always known about class differences growing up. Um, I had always seen the ways that people could be divided, you know, by their by their neighborhoods uh, based on what they could afford and what they couldn't. But I think that being in the city, um, seeing that on a much larger scale was also much more, I guess, enlightening to me. Um, Chicago is incredibly financially segregated. Um, which sometimes translates to it to being translates to it being very racially segregated and sort of being able to see that some people never hmm, I don't I don't want to use the word escape but leave or transition from some people never um transition from one state of being in the city to another state of being in the city. And I don't think that that was something I understood growing up and um, got to understand it much more clearly being an adult there, getting around the city, seeing that um, there were places that people had lived for decades and they never intended to leave those places. Um, And also that they might not even have an ability to leave or leave. Sorry. So I'm glad you brought that up because I intended to ask you, um, in the book you describe Chicago as two distinct cities bundled into one. Um, so can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah. Um, I think, I think it's maybe too easy to divide Chicago into, into cities geographically or topographically because a lot of people see this dividing line between um, the south side of Chicago and maybe not the north side, but everything north of the south side and beyond. Um, Although that divide is there, it's kind of concrete. It's easy to see when you're traveling through the city on the train or in a car. But for me, it was much more about uh, seeing family and friends and so when I when I moved to Chicago, there were parts of the city that only or that I only accessed um, based on my comfort levels. Uh, I didn't, as I said before, get around much when I first moved there. And the places I did go were places that I had been told were okay to go. Um, I more or less followed the advice of people who'd lived there, but who. I came to learn also had this idea of Chicago as being divided between its quote unquote good part and its quote unquote bad part. And that line started to become blurred for me as I started to visit my family more. I would, uh, I would leave downtown to go south of downtown and visit aunts and uncles and cousins. And um, that ended up being the divide that I saw. I saw that there was this there was this part of the city that my family had been very comfortable with and ways that they learned to live um, 
which could mean driving instead of walking everywhere or grocery shopping at certain kinds of stores um, that I didn't see enacted in other parts of the city where people felt you know, more than safe to walk from their apartment to a corner market or, um, or get around without using a taxi. Uh, just the ways that people utilize the city I saw were very, very different between um, the friends that I was meeting and the family that I had already living there. And even though that was divided by geography, it for me was much more divided by, I guess, uh, senses of privilege and, um, and the perceptions that my friends had of the city versus the city that my family had already known uh, for decades. So Island in the City is not just um, autobiographical. It's also sort of an exploration or a study of cities as an organism. So in addition to Chicago, um, much of the latter parts of your book take place in Prague. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm wondering, what is it about cities that people tend to romanticize and why are people drawn to, romantici- to romanticizing cities? I think that probably people come to romanticizing cities through their through those cities relationships with art um and so when you when you give me um the idea of romanticizing a city i immediately go to think about um images um still and moving so i can think about the ways that prague is depicted or the ways that london or paris or new york um or chicago are depicted and I think that I can say for myself, at least, that those are those are ways that I am able to imagine cities before I actually see them with my own eyes, and that that's probably I think uh, one of the ways that many people begin to identify with cities, especially if um, they are also not not visiting them. They think of Paris for you know it's Eiffel Tower and it's sidewalk cafes or London for the Big Ben and um, the London Bridge. Um, I think it's just easy basically to equate a city with the images that are paired with that city, but those images aren't, um, those images are what are presented to us, but they're not the only part of the city, especially um, when we actually come to put ourselves in those cities, we see that there's much more. The book is called Island in the City, and this is also the title of one of your chapters. Mm-hmm. What does Island in the City mean, and why did you choose it as the title of your book? I think that it was an accident, actually. Um, Island in the City refers to a neighborhood in Prague called Kampa Island, um, which is this... Well, Kampa is a neighborhood, but there's also an island right across... Um, a channel, a very small channel from that neighborhood that is an island. You have to, you have to walk maybe half of a block and then take an elevator down from the street level to the water or to the island, as it were. And I thought that that was always just something that was really unique. I'd never been in a place that had um, had this sort of part of itself where people would go to hang out and and drink beer and socialize that 
was also just right in the middle of a river. And so I thought that that was something unique about the city of Prague that I had, that I had fixated on. But I think that there's this accidental double meaning to island in the city in that I at some point call myself an island, um, referring to senses of isolation when I travel. Um, I'm very accustomed to traveling alone, and I, I, often feel, um, I often feel as though I'm this person who doesn't have to be noticed, um, this person who is just going around... Um, on his own whims, and it feels sort of maybe not intentionally isolationist, but it feels as though I am sometimes set apart from those cities because I'm not interacting with um, the locals or with friends or immersing myself in those cities, but rather passing through them. And so there is there is definitely one intentional meaning uh, referring to the island in the middle of the Vltava River in Prague, but an unintentional meeting in uh, the way that I feel when I travel to these places. So then, um, speaking to that, what is your concept of home, and how does one make a home for themselves? I think that... Well, I set out writing the book to answer that question. And I think that at the end, what I've come to realize or come to at least think is that homes are places that are built up over time. They're not places where we land. They're not places where we're born. Um, They're not necessarily places that we identify with based on our sense of nationality. I think that homes are very consciously constructed, and that could be a house. It could be, for example, my grandmother's house, which she has lived in for longer than I've been alive, and it's very much her home. But I think that it can also be the way that we have, the way that we have sought to fit ourselves within a locale. It could be this town and the ways that we have built up our social networks in that town, um, the ways that we have divide, or the ways that we have decided on having favorite places in that town. Um, just knowing that, knowing that there is something that has accumulated over time and that that accumulation leads to greater and greater comfort and also love, um, is most likely what establishes a sense of home for someone. Um, for myself, I have favorite places to go in Chicago. I have favorite places to go in Prague. Um, and that's how I know that I can count those places as home to me because they're not um, they're not like other places where even if I've visited a lot, I want to go somewhere for a sense of comfort. Um, it's It's knowing that there is a place where I can where I can be at rest and sort of rely on that um, as, I'm, as I'm hopping around from one place to another. So I have one more question for you. Sure. So Island in the City is very intersectional. Um, 
In this book, you touch on race, gender, sexuality, class, art, sex, um, very, very many facets of the human experience. And so um, this is sort of a broad question for you, but what are you hoping that readers will come away after reading Island of the City understanding better about one or all of these topics? I I hope that a reader comes away from Island in the City um, thinking about how nuanced the world is. I think that one of the things that I try to express in the book is how I, I look at place and how many different shades there are to that place. It's not... Um, it's not just about me interacting with a place on, um, on a surface level, but also looking at what's beneath that to see how, how the people in that place uh, perceive it themselves, how my perception lines up with that, uh, whether that perception has been correct or incorrect. Um, and also looking, looking at those different layers of nuance to realize how people form their own senses of identity, form their own senses of identity in the places where they go or the places where they live. Um, I, I think that through this book, I've lurked, I've looked at the world very intersexually um, by not just attempting to, just attempting to look at any one facet of the place that I'm talking about, but saying, or rather asking, what else is here? Um, what else is possible to know about this place as I not just regard it, but also explore it? And how can that get me to not just understand the place better, but also um, understand myself as a human being who uh, reads and reacts to the world um, Hopefully with, hopefully with compassion, but also understanding when I do so out of fear or do so um, out of anger, um, just sort of doing my best to get to the bottom of how all well that works. And I know that that's a lot to ask, um, but it's, it's certainly what the, what the book aims for. Um, I've joked before that the book is a better person than I am. Mm -hmm. And I, I hope that readers will come away from the book trying to see that, trying to see that this book is an attempt at just, um, being better at living as I get older and as I get around, um, and that they can find ways to do that as that as they age as well. Wonderful. Well, Micah, thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much for your time, Zoe. My name is Zoe Bossier, and you've been listening to New Books and Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Thanks for listening.